left off with Abraham uh, sending a servant back to his homeland looking for a wife for his son Isaac. And, uh, you know, the Lord came to him and said, don't, uh, don't get him a wife uh, here in this land. Go back to your land. So that's what he did. And chapter 24, verse uh, 60, uh, 66 or 56, I need glasses up here, 66, he says, Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into his tent of his uh, mother Sarah, and he, remarried, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And chapter 25 begins, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. So, we talked about how, you know, last week the, the whole idea of Isaac being the, the representation of Christ and, and so forth and, and all that. So if you want to go back and uh, hear that study, it's a great study. It's online. But here Isaac marries Rebekah three years after his mother died. So he's around 40 years of age. So we're not really sure the timeline here. Abraham married Keturah before uh, or after he, uh, you know, Isaac married Rebekah, we're not really sure, but Abraham was around 140 years old, and he lived another 35 years. Uh, Sarah dies, Abraham remarries, and, and was married for 35 years or so. In First Chronicles 1.32, it says uh, that she was, well, it calls her a concubine. In other words, a concubine is, a, is like a second-class wife. Um, why the Lord allowed this to go on uh, back then, I don't know. He, he forbid it once uh, Moses came on the scene and got the law for him. But they were technically married, but she didn't have the same rights as, as the first wife did, you know, the, the main wife. Uh, that's so weird saying that. But, you know, after Sarah dies, she's kind of elevated up to that role of full wife status. In other words, it was a mess back then. Uh, polygamy was and is and always will be a bad thing uh, for marriages. So, and then it goes on, verse 2, it says, She bore him Zimran, Josh, uh, Joshan, yeah, you read them all. Um, there's a whole list there of all the de- uh, names of all the descendants of Keturah. So we, so we see how the change uh, happens in Abraham, uh, and, and we, we see this just going on in his life. He was rejuvenated, we've talked about, how at 100 years of age, he was well past childbearing, and now he's 140 years old, and he's popping out kids like, like you know, right and left, you know, so what's going on? Well, the Lord somehow rejuvenated him, so we have six more sons. Now, Katera's name means spice or spices, and many scholars believe that her kids went on uh, to be international spice traders. Now, they're I'm going to just rely on their judgment on that. Those that have really studied that, um, I don't know. But the only name that we really recognize is uh, Midian. If you read the book of Exodus, uh, when Moses first tries to deliver the Israelites out of Pharaoh's hand, he gets a little ahead of himself, you know, ahead on, on a, you know, out on his skis, in front of his skis and all that kind of stuff. But he rushed the timetable and he kills a guard and he had to flee. And where did he flee down to? The land of Midian. So that's where the, you know, so we know that some of the descendants were, were there where he married a woman. But it goes on back in Genesis in verse 5. It says, Abraham left everything he owed to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of, the, of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of, e, to the, land of the east. This would be modern-day Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia. Basically, Abraham divided his wealth up between all his living sons in other words, there'd be no fighting over the will. I don't know if you've ever gone through that situation where you see family members. Uh, you know, I, I watched my mom go through this. Uh, 
My, you know, my grandfather passed away. He was a farmer in Oklahoma, and everybody left, come out here. Anybody Oklahoma descendants? I know Gary and them aren't here, but, but you know, all those people came out here. Well, they stayed and bought land. So we had a lot of land and stuff. So when they sold it all, I mean, there was a pretty good inheritance that was divided up between the children. And, I mean, so, I mean, they're getting, like, over $2 million each out of all the five kids. And they're fussing over, like, $20,000 here, $20,000 there. And you're just, like, scratching your head, you know. It's better for you to write it all out, you know. But Isaac will remain the focus here. He got the bulk of the inheritance, being the, the head son, being that top son, being the line of... Uh, of Christ here. In verse 7, it goes on, it says, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. I love this. Here's a man in the Bible says, he died satisfied. He died happy. He died content. We need to remember that death is, is not a completely sad situation. We mourn during death times those that are still living. But, man, if they're a believer, they're, they're gone to, to be with Jesus. They're gone to be with heaven. They're happy. They're with God. For a hundred years, Abraham had followed the Lord's command and separated himself from his people and went to where God had called him to go. And he walked with God for a hundred years in the desert. He never settled down. This is a good reminder for us. Our home is not here. Okay, we're sojourners like, like Abraham. We're passing through like, like Abraham here. Our home is not here. We set our eyes on where? We set our eyes onto heaven. He was a godly man. He was wealthy, but he didn't love wealth. It's okay for us to own things. You just don't let those things own you. It's okay to have wealth, but with that comes responsibility to do good with it, to follow the Lord with it, to advance the kingdom of God. It's okay to be wealthy. It shouldn't be a problem, but we should go, okay, the Lord has blessed me. Now what, do I, what, what does the Lord want me to do with all of this? Now when Abraham died, Isaac was 75 years old. Ishmael would have been 88 years old. Esau and Jacob would have been around 15 years old when their grandfather died. Very interesting thing here is we've talked about the beginning of Genesis and how the, the stories of Noah and all that were passed down. Noah would have been, well, well let me say this, Abraham, uh, Abraham died two years after Noah died. Think about that for a second. Think about how all the stories can be passed around. Abraham died two years after Noah, which meant Noah was around for 73 years of Isaac's life, 12 years of Esau and Jacob's lives. So you can see how the stories of, of what happened with the flood and all that could have been handed down all the way through Moses, through, through you know, it could have been written down through the oral uh, traditions that they had and all that. But we think of these people so far removed from one another, but Noah lived over 900 years. Noah passed down these, these firsthand accounts of how he walked with God for 300 years before the flood. And when God told him how wicked the world was, he, he, you know, how he gathered all the animals, and he records all that, and, he, and this ends up in Moses' hands one way or the other, and Moses writes it all out. It's amazing how the Lord preserved his word. Verse 9, it goes on in Genesis here. His son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave near Mamre, and I told you I couldn't pronounce that other word last week. So, in the field of Ephron, son of Sophar, the Hittite. 
The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. Now let's talk about a little bit about what happens to the soul at this point. Because this is Old Testament, this is pre-Jesus. And a lot of people have questions, well, what happens when, when a person from the Old Testament died? When Abraham died, he went to a place called Shell. And the Greek is, is the word Hades. The English we use it is the word hell. Don't think of it as, as the same as how we use the word. But that's what it's used in the New Testament is the word Hades. And it's divided into two compartments. Abraham went down to one compartment that bore his name called Abraham's bosom. So if you've ever thought what happened to the Old Testament believer before Christ came, where did he go? Well, as we studied in the book of Luke, Luke 16, Jesus tells us all about this place, or a little bit about this place. There it was divided, and there was a huge chasm between the two. One side the righteous people went to, the believers went to, the followers of the Lord, and one side the unrighteous went to. So what happens today? Well, it's a little different. The believer goes directly to be with Jesus. And the unbeliever goes to the same Old Testament uh, place that the non-believer went back then to await judgment. Now, Abraham's bosom, it was a paradise. But the people were, were, in a sense, were imprisoned there. Why? Well, because their sons hadn't been atoned for yet. They couldn't leave, uh, they were, they, but they were comforted while they were there. So when Jesus died, Ephesians 4 tells us that he went down to this place, Hades, or Abraham's bosom, and, and, and he, what, what he went to do was set the captives free. As an Old Testament believer who believed in the, in the God of Israel, the righteous ones, Jesus opened those prison doors and led them to heaven. Now the unbelievers go to Hades or go to that area and stay there for now, and in Luke 16 explains it. When they are resurrected at the end times, there'll be a great white throne judgment, as we read in Revelations, and they, you know, they end up in a permanent place called hell. It's the lake of fire. They will be held accountable for their sins and how much they knew and how much they rejected God. And they, there's all sorts of interesting things, different levels of punishment. But I was reading the quote, uh, or reading an article this last week about Daniel Radcliffe, uh, you know, the guy who played uh, Harry Potter, okay, in the movies. And he said, I will be pleasantly surprised if there is a God. And my heart just sank. You know, part of me goes, oh yeah, you're going to be surprised, aren't you? And then the other part of me says, oh, how sad is that? Here this young man is, is already saying, I am going to go to hell because I don't believe in any of it. Pleasantly surprised. I, there's, no, there's not going to be pleasant in that. In Genesis 25, 11, it says, After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer uh, Lahai Roy. Now, everything shifts to Isaac, and that's where the line's going to follow. He is the son of promises we've talked about, the seed of Christ. Uh, you know, we all have access to God through this seed. And Beer uh, Lahai Roy, and it means the well of the one who lives and sees me. And we talked about how Isaac was all about the wells and so forth. He wasn't about building different idols, I mean, not idols, but different uh, places of worship. 
his lineage, in a sense, you're going to see one well after another up to seven different wells in the, the perfect number. We talked a little bit about that last week, but it goes on in verse 12. This is the count of the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. And they, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. And you can read them for yourself there. I'm not even going to try. Um, but these sons of Ishmael went on to live in different places. You might remember back in chapter 21, verse 13, that God promised Abraham that he would make Ishmael into a great nation also. That when Sarah, you know, basically wanted to push out Hagar and push her on out and Ishmael on out and all that, God allowed Abraham to send them away, but he promised that he would bless them. Now, many of Ishmael's sons settled in the area around Saudi Arabia and this is kind of the birthplace of the God of uh, what they, little God, okay, don't get me wrong when I say this, but God, the God Allah, uh, he's worshipped there. In fact, it gave birth to the Islamic faith. Now, who is Allah? I mean, we've heard this name, but really, who is Allah? Well, to understand Allah, you have to understand Muhammad. So who is Muhammad? Muhammad was born uh, in 570 AD in Mecca uh, in Arabia. When he was 26 years old, he was a camel driver of all things, okay? He said he'd heard a voice, and later he said it was a revelation from God. And, and you know, uh, later, uh, during that time, a Christian Arab doctor studied his life and his writings and concluded that he had a neurological uh, order going on, like epilepsy, but something much worse than that. And others believe that he was actually exhibiting denom- demonic possession. But even Muhammad once said that he didn't know if his revelations were from God or from the jinns or genies or evil spirits because he believed in all that kind of stuff. And when the revelations came upon him, it, uh, it was written that he would go into these fits and they would foam at the mouth, fall on the ground, and he would lose all function of his body. And something was going on there. We don't know what it is. In time, with help uh, of his wife, he came to believe that he was a prophet of God. And he said he saw the angel Gabriel. Uh, sometimes it say, he said it was just his voice. Other times he actually saw him. And sometimes it was a bell in which he heard voices. Sometimes it was a dream. And other times it was through just thoughts in his head. And it's also written that when uh, these revelations came onto him, his whole body would become stiff and he would sweat and it would just pour down him, and he would just, you know, history tells us that, that, that this would happen to him. It's kind of interesting that history would also tell us that another man named Hitler, who after he gave his famous speeches, would kind of be the same way. The crowds would be spellbound for hours as he talked, and afterward he would just be covered in sweat, and his whole body would just give out with exhaustion. It was like the demons took him over, and, you know, and when they left, his bo- whole body would crash, and it seems like Muhammad was the same. The message would always come to Muhammad in Arabic, and he would speak the message that came to him, and those around him would write the very, you know, he was, he was thinking these are the very words of God, and they were set around, and they would write down these words, and it eventually became the Quran. So that kind of gives you an idea of what was going on. But it's interesting, in 1 John 1, I mean 4, 1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The closer we get to Jesus' return, 
We're going to see more and more of this kind of stuff. Like, you know, I mean, even, even small scale like David Koresh. But it's going to become a lot, lar- lot uh, larger on that. Worldwide deception. And many false preachers and many false prophets running around would deceive a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of people. So how do you test? How do you know which is true and which is not? You compare it to the word, the word of God. You compare the writings of Muhammad to God's word. You compare the writings of Joseph Smith and the Mormons to the word of God. You compare what the Buddhists have written down and said to the word of God. You compare somebody like smiling Joel Olstein, as I like to call him, or the word of faith movement. You compare even some evangelical movements where they're allowing certain things to happen within the church and be taught within the church that clearly go against the word of God. You have to compare it to what? The word of God. See, the word of God is our foundation because it is of God. We're not supposed to add to the word of God. If you find it differs from the word of God, you ignore it. You don't listen to it. You don't entertain it. Now, ever so often, coming from up here, I might say something that I come back later and I go, you know what, as I was studying this again, I think I, think I was wrong on that. I'll admit when I feel like I've, I've hit something that's wrong, okay? And, but, so, but, but the foundation of what we're talking about is the Word of God here. But there's many others out there that, man, they're going off on the deep end and they're not sticking to the Word of God at all. So we should ignore it. So Muhammad takes these revelations, and he goes to Christian scholars in the Jewish community at the time, and he tries to tell them, hey, I'm a prophet of God. Now, they didn't bite on that. They kind of rejected him. So then he went to Mecca and Medina and and convinced them, and these people worshipped over 360 gods. They had one god for every day of the year. Okay? Yeah, think about that for a second. How do you keep them all straight? Uh, we won't go there. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. The most important gods were the moon god, the sun god, and the star god. So Muhammad went about getting rid of uh, as much as he could, and he said, this is all old stuff, and the Jews and Christians are monotheists, so we need to become monotheists. We need to be the same. So they picked the greatest of all these gods and started worshiping that one all, only. So they took the god Alahe, which means moon crescent, And they made it into one God, Allah, which encompassed all of the gods. So basically, this God's now the big dog. This is where the concept of Allah came from. He was a pagan moon god, a war god, a sword god. So many people, you know, they talk about Islam is about peace and love. And for those that are visiting here, we don't talk about other religions and bash them every Sunday, okay? I don't want you to get, that's the road we're going. It just kind of hit right here, okay? But this war god Allah, the Islamic world divides the rest of the world into two different things. They have Dara al-Islam, okay? In other words, followers of Islam, or Dara Dara al-Har, so you have the house of Islam, which all Muslims, you know, all true Muslims belong to that. And all non-Muslims belong to the house of war. And the house of Islam cannot know peace until the other house is completely destroyed. That is what they truly believe. It is not until all the Jews, the Christians, and the pagans are gone that the whole world is all about Islam that they will know peace. 
That's what their scriptures are all about. Now, it's interesting that in the areas where only, you know, there's only Muslims, they're still fighting each other, which I don't get if they're supposed to be about peace. So if there's no Christians, Jews, or pagans, why would they still fight? Because Islam is based on a world, I mean, a warrior religion, the moon crescent representing war. Their motto is kill the Jews on Saturday, kill the Christians on Sunday, remember when God, or you might remember what God said about Islam in Genesis 16, 12, or about Ishmael, I mean, he said, he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. We see that today, don't we? We see that on the news. There are over 1 billion Muslims in the world. I would say about 85% of them are are somewhat peaceful. But then there's that other 15% that's really radical. Uh, The moderates are, are, are peaceful, but they still believe that everyone has to be Muslim for peace to exist in this world. But they want to do it through evolution. They want to do it with having kids and taking over the world, moving to their area, have as many kids as you can, as possibly can, and take it over. We see that's going on in Europe and other places. And, uh, you know, Europeans are not having kids, so their society is changing. There are radicals out there that don't want to wait that long. And that's where you get 9-11, you get all the attacks and so forth and what we see on the news going on over there. So back to the scriptures. Verse 17, it says, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area near our area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. And again, now we're going to switch back to the family of Isaac. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethiel, the Armenian from Paddan Aran, and the sister of Laban, the Armenian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, to Isaac's credit here, and Isaac is not perfect, and we're going to learn that as we go, go forward, but he didn't do what his father, uh, what his father did. You know, his father follow, followed his wife's uh, kind of uh, leanings towards saying, we need to, you know, have a baby here, take my, you know, the next concubine down the list. I can't have a child. Let her have the child. And we've talked about that and how that worked and how that child became Abraham's child and so forth. But Isaac didn't do that. He went to the Lord and he asked. And in fact, the Hebrew kind of gives the idea of he pleaded with the Lord. This is the same as as Moses did when he asked for the plagues to go away. It was a pleading to the Lord. So Isaac pleaded to the Lord for 20 years here. 20 years. We need to remember that that when we pray for something, I tell you, it's got to be on God's timing, not our own timing. How many of us have been praying for something for a long time? Anyone? Yeah. See some hands? And we're like, why isn't he doing it? I keep praying about it. Well, it's got to be in the Lord's timing. Maybe the Lord wants it. Maybe the Lord doesn't want it. I'm not sure, what, depending on the situation. But it's on his timing. It's often different than ours. So we don't give up on our prayers. Verse 22, it says, The babies jostled each other for, within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It seems like there's never really spiritual progress in our lives without warfare. Isaac is a type of Christ. Jesus is our intercessor. Okay? Isaac prays for his wife like Jesus is praying for us. And Rebecca's kind of a type of the church that, that, you know, Isaac's praying for the fruit to happen here. And the result was a struggle within her. Jesus wants us to be faithful in this world, you know, as our fallen nature doesn't want to be, you know, used for, for God's fruitfulness. So there's a fight within us. It's that nature versus, you know, the godly side of us. And we're like, why is this happening, Lord? Just like Rebecca, why is it happening? For Rebecca, the result is two nations, one stronger than the other. And this is like our nature. Either our Christ-like nature will be stronger, or our worldly nature will be stronger. We have that war within us. The flesh wars against the spirit. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. He says, so I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh? They're in conflict with each other so that you are not uh, to do whatever you want. See, the nature within us wants to do whatever it wants. Well, my youngest son right now, he's, he, he's in that stage. He's three and a half. And he, he, last night, he's, well, the last few weeks he's been doing this. But really, last night, he starts, when he wants something and we're not listening to him to the degree that he thinks we should, he starts going, wait, 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 wait. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm going, no, 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 no. We're not the ones waiting. You need to, you know what I'm saying? It's that war. He wants what he wants. Uh, uh, but the new nature is of God, and these two fight each other. We get to choose who wins. We either give in to the flesh, or we follow the Spirit of God. So the best defense is what? A good, of, uh, you know, strong offense. We as Christians we can be carnal. We can be carnal. We can give in or we can crucify the flesh. It's important for us to keep our focus on the Lord. It's important for us to keep our focus on God because that's when we're more likely not to give in to sin. Verse 22, it says, the babies jostled each other from within and she said, why is this happening to me? In, in the Hebrew, it's like they smashed themselves together within her body. And, and I've never been pregnant, so I don't know what it feels like to have a little baby in me. But I can tell you that, you know, my wife talking about the different things that happen and so forth. But imagine two of them fighting and smashing and you just going, I don't know what's going on. Something is wrong here. And it also denotes a negative thought of, why did I ever become pregnant? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm sure she's talked to the other women, and they're like, no, no, we never had that like that. I don't know what's going on. It goes on here in verse 22. So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. Now, we'll find out in a second that this is Jacob and Esau, and many of us know the story. But Jacob becomes the father of Israelites, and Esau becomes the father of the Edomites, and the older will serve the younger. So Esau will end up serving Jacob. 
And it's kind of interesting what happens here. This is exactly the opposite of what the world usually does. Um, the older sibling was, in a sense, was always in charge of the younger siblings. And I can tell you that can be, uh, you know, being a third in line of four boys, that, that's really irritating. Especially when your older one, you know, the oldest one is off his rocker. I mean, I'm just saying. I just, we can have personal conversations on that end, but it can be irritating. So, so this is a kind of a switch here. Uh, you know, technically it's not that way now, even though the oldest one, how many oldest ones we have in here? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, I'll just leave that alone. But no matter what the age was, the older always gets to be in charge in the society. The way it's supposed to be. There you go. Uh, we could beg to differ. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. No, I'm just, uh, Romans 9 says, uh, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, he was told the other will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I have hated, or I hated. And he's quoting Malachi there. But, you know, some are taken back by this. Some are, are kind of like going, what do you mean the Lord hated someone? How can you worship a God who hated someone? But the word hate here in the Hebrews uh, is really about preference, not about the hatred that we use that word today. It's not the same word as today. And Luke 14, 26 uses, uses the same kind of idiom here, the same kind of saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate uh, not, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So we're talking about preference here. God doesn't want me to hate my wife. God doesn't want me to hate my children. But he's saying that our preference should be to the Lord first, and then the wife comes, then the children come, then all of those things, a preference for God that everything is based on our relationship with God. Now, as we've talked about Calvinism and Arminianism, the extreme Calvinists will use this Roman passage to say, well, God has elected certain people to go to heaven and certain people to go to hell. And we've talked about this, how, how we are exactly saved is, is really a mystery. That the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit is pulling us toward God, and at the same time, we're given a choice to either accept that or, or deny that. And you see scriptures on both sides of this issue. It's kind of that mystery of how exactly it happens I don't know. I'll let scholars fight about that. All I know is it's both ways. God can handle that. We're the ones that get all caught up and, and, and you know, fussing and arguing and all that kind of stuff. God knows who, who will choose and who will not. He's all-knowing. But he still gives us an opportunity where we can say, yes, I believe, or no, I don't. So in one sense, God has elected, chosen who will get into the kingdom. In another sense, he leaves the choice up to us. So you guys can fight over who gets saved. I'll leave that up to God. I don't know, you know. So just ignore the fighting. Walk away from it. The only thing matters is this. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is what matters. All the other stuff, just ignore. So God was talking about two different groups of people here, not the individuals. In verse uh, 23, it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated one people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. Now, this never really happened while they were alive. This happened for their descendants later on. The power of Malachi 
uh, where it says that Jesus, I mean, that, that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He was talking about a sovereign plan here where Christ would, would come from the line of Abraham through Isaac onto Jacob when he changes his name to Israel. So his preference for the plan, the Jewish people, was Jacob over the Edomites through the people of Esau. I think it's interesting. I think America is kind of in the same position. I think God at one point chose America to be a light unto the world for a period of time. You know, we should be the light. We have freedom to be able to do those things. Now, does it make us better than any other part of the world or, or better than people that come from other parts of the world? Absolutely not. But God's preference was, you know, was for us at a certain point and maybe still be, I don't know, you know, but, but we bear a responsibility to handle that in the right way. See, the Jews only felt that God loved the Jews, America needs to, to get to a point where we, we don't think that God only loves us. Especially as America turns away from God. At some point, the hand of blessing will kind of be removed, just as it was with the Israelites. And God eventually will punish those that go against him, and that will include America. This preference is not about salvation, but this preference is about blessing. We know that God did not only, you know, only want the Jews to be saved, in fact, people from, from both Edom and you know, Amos, Amos 9, we see this, and people from Moab and, and Ruth 1, we see that, that you know, people who were not Israelites were welcomed into the kingdom. We also know that the Jews moved away from God, even though they thought that you know, they were like a shoe-in for heaven, and God began to turn to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know how about how many people have Jewish blood in in their veins right now, but thank God he turned to the Gentiles, right? That means we can go to heaven because of their rejection of God. There will be a place in heaven from, you know, there'll be people from all over the world, every tongue and every tribe and every, every nation. No one is automatically saved. Now, some might be blessed, and the question is, will they respond to God from that blessing and from the Holy Spirit? Back in Genesis 25, verse 24, it says, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was, uh, was red, and his whole body was like the hairy garment, so they named him Esau, in other words, hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob, which means heel catcher. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of, open, uh, of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac loved Esau's personality, a man of the world, a man who brought home the meat, a man who went out and hunted. This is why I go fishing once a year in Canada, okay? I'm trying to keep my manlyhood up. You know, trying to get those points. But, but Rebecca loved Jacob, liked to hang out at home. Now, there's not a problem with that at all. The word content here is not that he was womanly, like some people try to pull from Scripture and stuff like that. Um, but the word here, content, is used 13 times in the Old Testament, nine times as perfect. Now, we know he's not perfect. 
Two times is undefiled, one time is upright, and one time is mild. In other words, he wasn't the quintessential, let me go out there and let me play football, let me do all. He was a little more reserved in that area. The idea is that Jacob is, you know, wasn't perfect, but he was, viewed, you know, as, he was viewed from God as perfect because he was a believer. And that's something we need to understand. He had sin that we will see in the, in the next few weeks, but, but God saw him as perfect just as he sees us. If you are a believer, God sees you totally different than how you see yourself in that mirror. And we've got to get beyond that, that I can't go to God because of my own sin. We've got to go beyond that. The contrast here is that Esau was a man of the field, a hunter, a grunter. In the New Testament, in the parables, Jesus said the field equals the world. So Esau was a worldly man, and Jacob was a believer in the one true God. Verse 29, it says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of the red stew. I'm famished. And this is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? So what's what's going on here? Was he really about to die? No, he was hungry. It's just something we say like that. You know, the other day we had some friends playing cards, and, and the game took like four stinking hours. The first six hands, um, all I did was hold cards. I didn't really play the game, okay, because it did, wasn't working for me. At one point, I said, you guys are killing me. Now, were they really killing me? No, it's just something, well, I mean, in the guard game, maybe, but it's just something we say. Esau's doing the same thing, birthright, okay, whatever, sure, fine. Verse 33, it says, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank, and they got, then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Despised, what does that mean? It means he didn't care less. He's like, whatever. Okay, leave. So what is the birthright? Well, the firstborn had the birthright. If you had two sons, you divided that inheritance three ways. The first son got double, double portions. And the second son got a single portion. But with that came the responsibility to be the spiritual leader of the family. So when the father dies, it falls on you. You have that extra responsibility. Well, Esau is the type of guy he, he, who kind of made his own way in life. He didn't care about the spiritual leadership. So really, double portion, no big deal to him. He can make it on its own. So he could care less about that. And he certainly didn't want the spiritual aspect of it. So today, as I'm out of town, as, out of ta- time, as we close, I believe that there's many of us as Christians that are out there selling our birthright. In a sense, we're thinking about the things of the flesh, the things that we desire, the things that we want that, that maybe are not of God, and selling the spiritual things. The downside of being blessed by God is we have so much, uh, so much blessing that we take our eyes off of God and we spend our time making money, buying things, going places, being about material things in life, and it feeds into this flesh and takes away from our time with God. Away from church, away from ministry, 
away, you know, away, away from thinking about God when you're out there in the world. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't go on vacation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a house and have a car and all those things. I mean, the, but our focus shouldn't be on those things. You know, if the Old Testament is about uh, our learning, you know, the scriptures say that the Old Testament is there for, the scriptures are there for us to learn from. Then what can we learn from this? We need to keep our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on godly things, not earthly things. Because if they stick on earthly things, what happens? We go the earthly way. We go the way of Esau. We go out into the world, and we don't care about the birthright. We don't care about the spiritual aspect. We don't care about leading our families We don't care about being a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly child. We don't care about those things or a godly worker in whatever job you're at. We sell our birthright and become just like the world. And then they they look at us when we screw up and they go, why do I want to become a Christian? I mean, look at them. And instead of when a hard time hits us and we follow God and people see us go through that difficult time and they're just like, wow, I can't believe how how he or she handled that. Man, I mean, they got hit pretty good, and what came out of them was, was, was godly-type things instead of earthly things. We have to keep our mind on the Lord, on the Lord. Well, let's pray as the worship team comes and uh, finishes us up. Lord, I pray that as we, uh, as we end today, that it's not an ending for today. It's just that we begin our week. We begin our week worshiping you, and we can take the thoughts and the things that are, that are said today from your spirit and go out into this world and concentrate on you. That when people see us, they see you. They get past the outer stuff. They get past the, uh, the worldly things, and they spe- see the spiritual side, and they're drawn to that, Lord. I pray that we can draw people to you. Let us be used. We, we, we ask you to be used in this world. We pray for our young ones that they, they know you. We pray for our neighbors that they would know you. We pray for the people that are idiots on the freeway, that they would know you. Because it's about you, Lord. It's not about us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you this week in your home, in your office out there in this world. May you shine like the star, stars in the sky. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.